They were called followers of Jesus Christ. And then thereafter, they were called the disciples of Jesus Christ. And the word disciple had a much more meaningful understanding and meaning than it does today. Disciple is the word, the Greek word, methetes. Methetes means someone who is a follower of a teacher. It means literally you're following in the shadow. You're replicating everything this teacher does. You're exactly doing. You're following their philosophy. You're following their footsteps. You're following their pattern. You're following their beliefs. You're following the same fervency there. But notice as we make our way, then as as people are getting saved and the Christianity is expanding across the Roman Empire, they're called the people of the way because they, they were persuading people to go a certain way. And I think they got that from the fact that Jesus said He is the way, the truth, and life. Now we get to Acts eleven twenty six. I don't know, about 20, 20 years has gone by or so. Since, since the Holy Spirit came down upon, upon, the, upon the church and Jesus has ascended to heaven and the church is much more mature, it's expanding out there because of persecution that happened down in Jerusalem. And the Bible says the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Do you understand what's going on there? Antioch was the on-fire church in the Roman Empire. Antioch became the model church. It surpassed Jerusalem as the, modern, as the model church. Antioch was the church where prominence is given in Acts chapter 13 of the sending out of missionaries and the accounting of missionaries and the reporting of the of the mysteries back to the local church and the Antioch became the place where missionaries were sent out and the word of God was propagated and souls were being saved and when you read Acts chapter 11 and read all that's going down in Antioch God took some men that got saved down there Jerusalem and then went back there and souls are getting saved and they needed to get a church organized and they didn't know what to do and word got back to the church of Jerusalem that they needed leadership and they needed some structure and they needed some direction and the church leadership met and they said listen the best man to send down there as a man by the name of Barnabas, we need to send an encourager down there that will help them. And Barnabas came down. And when the Bible says when he saw the grace of God as they were multiplying and disciples and people getting saved and discipleship, the Bible says that he, that he just kind of stayed there and he led them. And he became the very first pastor there at the church in Antioch. Listen, a church that is filled with Christians are people that are on fire. They had no problem identifying with their faith. Do you understand having the name Christian back in that day? That meant automatic, automatically being ostracized from society. That meant that you ran the risk of being persecuted. That meant you ran the risk of losing your business. That meant you ran the risk of being run out of town. You couldn't even sell your real estate. You couldn't sell your possessions, your belongings. You'd have to take your clothing on the back of your on your back there and make your way out. I mean, being a Christian was a high risk thing at that time. It was very high risk to tell people you believed in Jesus Christ. And when people made that profession, they said, I believe in Jesus Christ. I identify with Jesus Christ. I love Jesus Christ. He is my Savior and He's my Lord and He's my God. And I'm his disciple, and I, I don't mind telling people about who Jesus Christ is in my life. I'm telling you, so powerful was the witness and testimony of Christianity. People called themselves Christian. Herod Agrippa was a, as much a pagan man as anybody could be. As Paul had an audience with him in Acts chapter 26, he said this to Paul Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Hey, listen, it cost to be a Christian. And back in those days, they're Christians, the norm for Christianity. They spent time in prayer before God, they walked with God, they gave demonstration of a holy, separated life before God. They were Christians living for Jesus Christ there. The very name Christian means little Christ. They were called Christians there first. The word implies they were committed to his cause. Being a Christian means you're vocal and fiery about your faith in Jesus Christ. That you're showing forth the praises of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Being a Christian meant that you were not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Being a Christian meant you were even willing to die the death that you had to for Jesus Christ there. They were impacting their city. What's in your name? Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? What kind of Christian are you? Listen, tonight we look at the name Christian. What's in your name? Yehu means Jehovah. See, what's in your name? We see the name Christian. But I want to give you another name. There's the name Baptist. The name Baptist. Okay? This is not a Presbyterian church. And this is not a Methodist church. And this is not a universal church. And this is not a Bible church. And this is not a community church. And this is not a make me feel happy church. It's make me feel holy church. A Baptist church is identified by its doctrine. Listen tonight. The name Baptist is a special name that is even more specific about my belief and specific about my commitment as a Christian. And by the way, when I'm talking about Baptist, for those of you new, I'm talking about an independent Baptist. We're not tied to any hierarchy. We're not tied to any specific denomination. With a denomination head, we're talking about an independent Baptist church. A local, autonomous, individual church. It meets locally here. We meet at 2960 Merced Street. That 
that's our locale. We're autonomous. We are a congregation in the world church. We understand that we are reporting to Jesus Christ. We understand that our authority is the Bible, the Word of God. As a Baptist, we believe salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone and nothing added to that. We believe that the Bible is inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God. It has been preserved for us through the King James Version translation. Listen to me tonight. We've got too many Baptists now going outside the King James Version trying to find another modern version. They're going to the ESVs and NIVs and HIVs and all kind of versions like that. And I'm talking about Baptists that have graduated from independent, fundamental Baptist local colleges that we have been supporting. They're coming out saying, I agree. So they throw their tassel at graduation. I believe that the Bible is the preserved Word of God through the King James Version, and yet they're going off to other versions of the Bible. Now I want to tell you tonight, God's Holy Spirit, and I'll get into this tonight, God's Holy Spirit enables you to understand the book. He helps you to understand that book. And for you to get lazy and say, I've got to find another version. People come in for these different Protestant backgrounds. By the way, Protestants are not Baptists and Baptists are not Protestant. We believe as Baptists there is literal, a literal heaven and hell. We believe in one God who is the God consisting of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is God's Son. And by the way, He's completely God, not partially God. We believe Jesus Christ is virgin born and sinless. We believe Jesus died for every sinner. Hey, you be careful. As this church grows, some of you don't even know this. As our church grows and people are coming in, and we'll average on a low side two to as many as 20 visitors on an average week. And along the way, someone's going to come in. I've been talking to all of our discipleship classes, and I'm telling you, and I'm going to keep telling our classes. They're going to come in along the way, and they're going to pull somebody aside, and they're going to say something like this. Well, you know, I really didn't agree with what Pastor Fong has to say. I used to be a pastor here, and I used to be an elder here, and I used to be this there. Yeah, that's the problem. You used to be. You never did anything. Go win some souls. And those you complain too much, you're complaining because you're not winning souls. Go win some souls. Go knock on some doors. They come out there and so say, I don't agree with what the pastor says. And, you know, they, you know, you're too much law and you're not enough grace. And then now you're going to have a grace. You know what law and grace is? They, what they're saying is, if they don't like what they hear, it's law. And if they hear what they want to hear, it's grace. Let me tell you what tonight about grace and separation. For the grace of God that brings us salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, that we should live soberly, righteous, and godly in this present world, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious spirit of the great God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen, who's redeemed us from all sin, that we might be a peculiar people, zealous unto all good works tonight. We believe the Holy Spirit is the third person of the God who dwells every believer and is the seal of our redemption. We believe that Jesus Christ is coming again. We believe Jesus Christ is coming by way of the rapture for the local New Testament church. And then after that happens, after seven years tribulation, Jesus Christ is coming again. The return of the church with Jesus Christ to establish His kingdom here on earth, which we know is the millennium. We believe that as believers and as Baptists tonight. Salvation is available to all who believe in Christ and is every man's free choice. These people come from these other Presbyterian and whatever kind of, listen, the David Platts and all that kind of stuff. They come out of these backgrounds. They're advocating a Calvinistic theology and young guys who've been taught right, who used to knock on doors and win souls. They start reading the poison of a David Platt. They start reading the poison of some other Yehu, some, some other knucklehead author out there. And they start changing their persuasion. I tell you what Calvinism, Calvinism is spiritual laziness hidden behind the fact you don't want to win souls. You're trying to find another alternative to get people saved. And they're not going to get saved. So you just, here's what you do. You believe the lie that God is saved. God only will save some to go to heaven and the others he's going to send to hell. Well, if that is true, God sends people to hell. We've got to reword John 3.16. We believe baptism is by immersion. And I tell you how, how narrow I am. If your doctrine, you come here from another church, doesn't line up with our statement of faith and with our doctrine, I'm so narrow. Listen, if you even come out of 99% of the cases, they come out of a Southern Baptist church, I'm going to require them to get scripture baptized in our church. Because most Southern Baptist seminaries do not believe that the Bible is the Word of God. And Southern Baptist churches, on top of that, they have women preachers, which is unscriptural. And on top of that, if they even believe the Bible, they're using a non-King James Version. I'm that narrow. We're going to require scriptural baptism because I want to make sure you're on the same page where we're at. Baptists believe and practice personal corporate soul winning. I'm tired of soul winning. Well, you're going to stay tired. You might as well get involved because we're not changing it. 
I'm 61. I'm still knocking doors. And the longer I'm at it, I get crazy. I drive furiously. <laughs> Baptists of Holden are involved in reaching the world with the gospel through missions. Baptists hold to personal and ecclesiastical separation. What's that? You need to enroll in discipleship. And you'll learn about that. Amen? Baptists are strong local church. Let me tell you tonight, John was a Baptist. Jesus was a Baptist. But the pastor, how is a Baptist? Who baptized him? John the... John the... Baptist. That's right. Jesus was a Baptist. Peter was a Baptist. How do you know that? Jesus baptized Peter. Paul was a Baptist. I'm a Baptist. Some of you need to go back and blow the dust off of some of your books and read about some of our Baptist forefathers like Peter Waldo. You want a hero of the faith? Peter Waldo was the founder of our one of our Baptist forefathers. While Dentians were up in the, 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 the Alps there. Listen, they were hunted. They had to make their way out of the normal cities, get up there in the caves, and they, their pulpit was basically some, some just archaic thing they had to do, and they sat on these hard benches they made, and these hard rocks they made, and they were constantly running, and yet, you think about the underground church today that is in communistic countries right now, the underground church today, as much as they, they are suffering, what they're going through today compares nothing to what Peter Waldo and our Waldensian brethren went through back in the day. Listen, they had, to, they had underground churches. They had to keep going. They'd make their way into the city, try to give the gospel, and then they'd make their way back into the mountains. Eventually, the Duke of Savoy in 1655 got some spies out there and found out where they were at. And they went up to the mountain area where Peter Waldo had these Waldensian believers who practiced scriptural baptism, who preached that the Bible was the Word of God, who believed in winning souls in spite of persecution, who stood firm to the faith and held to the fact that Jesus Christ is the Savior of all men. And in spite of Calvinism starting to raise his ugly head, they kept on preaching the Word of God. They kept on saying, we've got to reach the French. We've got to reach the Swedes. We've got to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they kept on going and reaching these people with the Lord while the Duke of Savoy made his way up there and they found them and they rounded these Christians up. Let me tell you tonight how brutal and how terrible the persecution they went with. They would take little babies and they'd have soldiers hold these little babies and by their sheer man strength, they would rip the limbs off those babies. They would sever the heads off those little babies, off those heads, off those bodies and they'd tie a string around it and make the fathers wear the head around their bodies and walk around there. They would do all these atrocities that they would do to these Christians. And then to make matters worse, as they got word onto it, these Christians would not recant their faith. These believers would not recant their baptistic faith. They took them over to the cliff on those high mountains where that, and they threw them down those cliffs so that when they hit the bottom, they would, their bodies would burst apart. I'm telling you tonight, they, they suffered for Jesus Christ because they believed what they believed as Baptists. And here's the typical Baptist day. Oh, oh I'm tired. Too much for me to go to church. What's in your name? Whose name meant Jehovah is He. Number two, what's your necessity? Number one, what's in your name? Number two, what's your necessity? And by that I mean, what is your purpose here? What are you supposed to be doing for your life and for God? What does God want you to be doing with the salvation you have been freely given? We look at this man, Yehu. And the first thing we see in verses 1 to 6 is a specific anointing. Now, when we read about this anointing, we've got to go back to First, First Kings 19 and read about when God was dealing with Elijah and had to recommission Elijah. He told Elijah, there are three things I want you to do. You need to, deal, you need to go see Hazel, who will be the next king of Syria. You need to go find Yehu and anoint him because he's going to have to deal with Ahab on some things that had not unfolded yet. And you need to go find a young man by the name of Elisha and you need to pour oil on his head because that young man is going to follow you for the next ten years and he's going to be, you're going to be his mentor because he's going to be your successor to the ministry. 
ministry. He said, yeah, you know, Elisha, uh, Elijah, I want you to get, get back focused in your ministry and focus in your life. Because he says, I'm telling you exactly, you've got 10 years left in your ministry before I'm going to take you home. And I want you to pour everything you can into a young man by the name of Elisha. He's the one I've been studying. He's the one I'm looking at. He's the one that's going to take place. Well, the only one that, that Elijah went and did anything with was Elisha for whatever reason. He never went after Hazel as far as we know. And we don't, we definitely believe he never went after Yehu. So notice here in chapter 9, Elisha remembers that. Many years have gone by since that time. And Elisha is at this place where the king of Syria has raised his ugly head. And Hazel now is the king of Syria. He's raised his ugly head. And he's seen the vision from God as we saw last time we were in this passage. That Hazel will come and wreak terror and havoc over all of Israel. And, and in fact, Elisha wept over that situation. And so now was the time as he considered and prayed over what God wanted him to do. God reminded Elisha back in the day in 1 Kings 19 when God told Elijah to go anoint this man by the Yehu. Yehu now is many years older. He's been a captain all this time. He's not risen in promotion. He's been one of the major captains there in the army of Israel. And Yehu there is sitting with the other captains here in some location there. And they're eating and drinking and having a good time. And Yehu sends a, excuse me, um, Elisha sends a servant of his over there with a box of oil to Ramoth Gilead to pour oil on the head of Yehu. And if you'll notice verse 6, by, by way, just by very quickly, notice this here. It says this, And the young man arose, and the Bible says, And he went into the house where, 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 where uh, Yehu was, and he poured the oil on his head, and he said unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I have anointed the king over the people of the Lord, even over Israel. Now we may read that, pass over that, but look at it very carefully. He had a specific anointing of God. Yehu's life was changed at that moment in an instant not overnight faster than overnight it was changed at that moment the oil was poured on his head he knew what that meant when oil was poured on the head of a prophet oil would be poured on the head of a prophet oil would be poured on the head of a priest oil would be poured on the head of a king to identify they've been set apart for the service of the Lord to some, to some capacity it represented that in most cases that the hand of God was upon the person that he anointed this an anointing was a special thing an anointing was a powerful thing that's why that's why we when we read about anointings, we need to pause and stop for a minute and think about the significance of that and what God was doing in the life of that individual. And God put His anointing on that man for specific service. He was to be the king over all of Israel. And we read His job description from verse 7 on. He was to go and smite all of the house of Ahab. He was to take care of business. He had to deal with Ahab's house, which now represented his son Joram. Uh, and later on, uh, the, uh, Ahab's wife was still alive, Jezebel. He had to deal with those issues there. The anointing was for a lifetime. The anointing indicated God had His hand on a man for a specific thing. Now, stop there. Stop there for a minute. Let's go to where you and I are at. Do we have an anointing today? Yes, we do. First John 2.20 says, You have an unction from the Holy One, and you know all things. And First John 2.27 says, But the anointing which you have received to Him abideth in you, and you need not that any man teach you, <coughs> but the same anointing teaches you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, even as has taught you, you so shall you abide in him. What he's saying there in First John is about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about at the moment of conversion, what Ephesians 1.13 speaks about, that the Holy Spirit of God indwells us. John uses the term, he refers to the fact that we've been anointed, or we have an unction from the Holy One. We've been anointed. The Holy Spirit of God fills us and indwells us, if you would. And He lives inside of us. And He's there for the purpose of being our comforter, the one who comes alongside of us. And He's there to be our teacher, to teach us all things. Now notice two things very quickly because of time. Would you notice this anointing, first of all, or the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is twofold at salvation. It is twofold at salvation. Number one, the indwelling is for the benefit of our spiritual growth. The Holy Spirit teaches us. Now, watch this. This is why Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. The Holy Spirit doesn't speak differently to people. When someone says, the Holy Spirit spoke to me, here's the problem I have with it. If it's the same Holy Spirit, why didn't He talk to me? I had that Sunday. Someone said, well, the Holy Spirit spoke to me. I said, well, that's funny. He didn't speak to me, and I've been in the Word all week. Not about that specific topic they're bringing out. And he's talking about here, for the benefit of our spiritual growth, the Holy Spirit's our teacher, guides us in all truth. If you read the entire context of 1 John, you understand they were under attack by the Gnostics. There was false doctrine going on about the deity of Jesus Christ. And by the way, false doctrine always attacks either the deity or the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus Christ. Listen, we are not to bring Jesus Christ down to our level. We're to come up to His level. He said, if I be lifted up, the, the choice is ours. 
In 1 John 2.27, it says, But the anointing which you have received of Him, by the way, that's the gift of God, abideth in you, it's He indwells us, and you need not that any man teach you, but it's the same anointing teaches you of all things, and it's truth, and it's no lie, even as I've taught you, you shall abide in Him. Now, you've got to read that in the context of what's going on in 1 John. It is not saying you don't need a pastor. It is not saying you don't need to be under spiritual authority. That is not what it's saying. And if you believe that, you're living in sin. Because you're not in submission to local New Testament church or local New Testament pastor. You didn't hear a lot of amens about that. We've got a problem tonight, I think. The Holy Spirit guides and leads us when we have a pure and teachable spirit. And he's talking about here, listen, they had forgotten down to 1 John, down to the church at Ephesus, that the Holy Spirit was working in their hearts and they were trying to discern right from wrong and truth from error. And he talks about the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Does he not talk about that in 1 John 4? And he talks about greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. You've got to read the entire context what he's saying there. Listen, he's saying read the word of God. And as you read the word of God, which is pure, God's word coupled with the Holy Spirit will give you enlightenment about what God's word says. But here's where everybody goes off on wrong doctrine. They start reading about what this theologian says and that theologian. I have advice to you. Get out of your cemetery. Get out of your theologian books and get in the book and let the Holy Spirit be your teacher. That's what he's saying there. Second, his indwelling is for the benefit of the work of grace. Look at Romans 12, verses 3 to 7 very quickly. The work of grace is the holy and right application of spiritual gifts we've been given as salvation. Everybody here that's saved, if the Holy Spirit's inside, if you're saved, the Holy Spirit lives inside you, you have at least one or more spiritual gifts that are a work of grace. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. It is a gift from God. And he says in verse 3, For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than all to think. You know what that tells me tonight? 99% of us need to be down the altar tonight to confess our sin of pride. You're not bigger than you are. You've not arrived. Even the Apostle Paul says, I have not arrived. I've not apprehended. Neither have I, neither have you. For I say through the grace given to me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. According as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith, for as we have many members in one body, and all members have the same office, have not the same office, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and everyone members one of another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. And all I'm saying tonight, the Holy Spirit was given for the benefit of spiritual growth, and He was given to us for the work of grace. Listen, in order for us to have a spiritually healthy church, in order for us to have a church that is doing the will of God, we must know what our spiritual gifts are. And for some who are not, who are ignorant of that, we have a spiritual gift test we give you that kind of bring you towards that pathway so you can have a realization of where you're at. I can look at most people and talk to them after about five minutes. I have a pretty good size up at that moment of time what I believe their spiritual gift is. But we always like to take the survey because we're not God and we want to have to correctly get an idea where this person's at and ask the right questions and guide them, direct them for the development of that spiritual gift there. And I'm saying tonight, every Christian needs to know what your spiritual gift is. And you ought to have a burden tonight. If you don't know what your spiritual gift is and you're not using your spiritual gift in the Heritage Baptist Church, you ought to be burdening your heart tonight to say, Pastor, would you, can you tell me, can you show me, to help me to know what my gift is? And if you know what your gift is, you ought to come with a humble heart and say, Pastor, could you help me to take my gift to another level? Could you help show me from the Bible and with God's power how to use my gift effectively for the glory of God? And by the way, so winning is not a gift of God. So winning is a commandment. Yea, who was anointed to be king, he had a specific anointing. You and I have a specific anointing to use the, 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 that the Holy Spirit would, can do His work of grace in our life. Then notice number two, we see a sanctified assignment. Verses 7 to 10, God gives him his job description. God had prophesied through prophet Elijah back in 1 Kings 21 exactly what, what had to happen to Ahab and Jezebel. God had it with them. God's mercies wore out. God was merciful and kind to them over and over again. But when they plotted and conspired to kill Naboth, the Jezreelite, they wanted to take his land. They had him murdered. They lied against him and had him killed and all those kind of things there. God had it with them. He says, this is what's going to happen to you. And he wanted to go out and God was concerned about Jezebel. In fact, he talked about Jezebel here, about her whoredoms and her witchcraft. And that's pretty strong in describing what her sins are. And I want to say tonight, this man, this man, Jehu, had a sanctified, he had a holy assignment from God. His mission was to deal with sin. And I'll tell you how, how patient God was. 
This, this assignment traces itself back to 1 Kings 19, verses 15 to 16. Look it up when we're done tonight. When God makes a statement, He keeps His statements. You say, well, God hasn't done anything. You just wait. God's patience is long, more long enduring than yours and mine. And God gave in detail the nature of His judgment to Ahab and Jezebel. And I'm not going to read you all the gory details, but I do want to summarize and tell you what He had to do here as part of the sanctified assignment. Notice number one in chapter nine, Yoram, had, Yoram the son of Ahab, had to die. It was prophesied that the sons of Ahab would have to die for their father's sin. God told Ahab when he humbled himself for a moment, he says, you see this man? Because he's humbled himself, I will not inflict him with this, but this will be passed upon his sons. Because God knew his sons were worse than the father. Second, Ahaziah, who was related to Yoram through marriage... His mother was Athaliah. Ahaziah was the king of Judah. He was one of the bad kings. Thank God there weren't a lot of bad kings, but he was one of them. And he and Ahaziah went out to battle against Haziel in the previous chapter. And Haziel had wounded, wounded Urim. And Urim went back to Jezreel to get healed of his wounds. And was there. Ahaziah came down to visit with them because they were very close friends. And there was an unequal yoke that should never happen. But Ahaziah went there anyway. And Ahaziah was the wrong person, wrong place at the wrong time. But listen, Ahaziah's heart was not too far from where Urim's was. And listen, it was prophesied that the sons of Ahab had to be killed. And Ahaziah was in the city of Jezreel. If you read the context of the scripture here, what, what, uh, what uh, Yehu did with his captains, they encircled all of, of, of uh, Jezreel. They encircled the entire location so it was sealed off. None could go in and none could go out. And they had this thing all plotted because he wore the Israeli uniform. He was a captain in the army of Israel. They had, they were not aware of that fact that God had anointed him to be king and they didn't need to know that. They were wondering kind of, what's he doing? He was in Ramoth Gilead. Why, why is he riding his chariot out here? What's going on here? That's why they asked the question, is it peace? Is there something going wrong? Is there war going on? Do you need our help? What's going on there? And God had to deal with Yoram. God had to deal with Ahaziah. But thirdly, as we read the rest of this chapter from verse 30 to 37, God had to use this man to deal with Jezebel. Jezebel would have to die for her idolatries and the murders of God's prophet. Listen, God takes very highly when His men, when the men of God are being slaughtered and hurt, God has His payday someday against those who are murdering them. There were quite a few people that, that Jezebel killed. So God was using this man as an agent, as an instrument of righteousness in the lives of these people. Now notice tonight, I called letter B this a sanctified assignment. It was for the purpose of promoting the holiness of God. As a believer, you and I have a sanctified assignment. Look up here tonight. We have a sanctified assignment given by us by God as well there too. And that sanctified assignment has to do with sin in our bodies. Listen tonight to Romans chapter 6, verses 11 to 13. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign... That's idea of a king. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Hey, watch this. This man, Yehu, was an instrument of God's righteousness. God used him to cut off this lineage of sin. God used him to deal with it. Remember the verses, if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. If thy, if thy, you know, if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. He wasn't talking about a literal, literal cutting off or severing. He was talking about where there's an offensive there. You've got to cut that sin out. And here's what he's doing. God is using him to promote sanctification and things of that nature there that would be holy and right. And listen tonight. Would you listen tonight? There in all of us, in all of us, there is an Ahab, there is a Yoram, there is a Jezebel, there's an Ahaziah wanting to dethrone Jesus Christ. Because tonight, it's either King Yoram, who's the flesh that's in control of your heart, or it's King Jesus, who's the King of all creation that's King of your heart tonight. Because it comes down to this, on a sanctified assignment, either we're dealing with sin in our lives, or sin's dealing with us. That's really the truth of the matter. You look at verse 13, Romans 6.13, that's Pretty convicting. Neither yield to your members as instruments of righteousness, that wagging tongue that criticizes. That heart has an evil motivation. Those sins of speech and sins of the Spirit as we talked about last Sunday morning. You had a sanctified assignment. 
Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Sin was running rampant throughout Israel. God called Yehu. You've got to deal with it. I wonder tonight, is there something God put in your mind tonight, in your heart, that needs to be dealt with? Is there some part of our lives that we're yielding as instruments of unrighteousness? How's your mouth been this last two weeks? How's your speech been? How's your brain been? Your thoughts? How your motives been? How's your heart? You've been plotting to dethrone someone else so you can be in control and you're wringing your hands hoping you can be in control of something? This is God's work. This is God's house. This is a holy place. We're on holy ground. But notice a satisfactory accomplishment. We read all of chapter 9 and most of chapter 10. We see one thing. Yehu got the job done. You know what God wants us to do? Get the job done as far as eradicate, getting, dealing with sin in our lives. We're not going to eradicate the sin nature, but we can deal with sin one sin at a time. And you'll notice Yehu here tonight. Would you notice how uh, he, uh, the satisfactory accomplishment? Notice first of all, verses 25 to 26. He got it done with conviction. Verse 25 and 26, he said, Then said Yehu to Bidkar's captain, Take up and cast him in the portion of the field of Naboth the Jezreelite. For remember how that when I and thou rode together after Ahab's father, the Lord this laid his burden upon him. You know what he's saying there? We were there, Bidkar. We were sitting on our horses, being in obedience to the king. But we heard it with our own ears, Elijah tell that man, What just went down today? We heard it with our own ears. And listen, we better, we better not mess with God. We better take this old guy's carcass and we better throw it inside the, the, the field of Jezreelite, the Naboth, Naboth the Jezreelite, because they did this man wrong. They're, we're going to have to put it there like dung on the field. And he said in verse 26, Surely I've seen yesterday the blood of Naboth. He could see as real as it was yesterday that the blood of Naboth that was shed as he was stoned, as he was hung, as he was shed, as he died a martyr's death there in verse 26. He says, I've seen the blood of his son, saith the Lord, and I will require thee in this plot, saith the Lord. Now therefore take and cast into this plot of ground according to the word of God. Listen, Jehu got it done with conviction. Lord, listen tonight, brother and sister in Christ, it's going to take some conviction to deal with sin tonight. I'm not waiting to the fall revival for us to wait to deal with sin. We've got to deal with it tonight. Deal with it now. Now is accepted time. Now is the day of salvation, the Bible says. He dealt with it with conviction. Notice he got it done with courage. Notice in verse 24, once he saw, once he saw uh, uh, Yoram there in verse 24, he, he could have wavered that moment when he saw him. The Bible says immediately as, 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 as Yehu turned his hands and he tried to turn his chariot around. The Bible says in verse 24, and Yehu drew a bow with his full strength. Listen, most Christians never draw the bow at full strength. You're halfway in what you're doing. Your arrow never makes it. Think about that. You've got good intentions. You draw it back, but you never draw back full enough to get it done. Listen, he drew back that arrow and that bow at full strength, and he smote Yoram between his arms, and the arrow went out of his heart, and he sunk down his chariot. He did it with courage. It's going to take some courage. It's going to take some conviction to deal with sin in our life. It's going to take some courage and some conviction to represent the name of Jesus Christ. It's going to take some courage and conviction to go out and share the gospel and tell people about the Lord. Listen, if God's working your heart, and you meet all the spiritual qualifications according to the Bible, it's going to take some courage and conviction to be a missionary today on a third world country soil for the glory of God. And by the way, Yehu got it done as a conqueror. Look at verse 35. They went out to bury her, but they found no more of her. That's what's supposed to happen to sin. You found no more of it. Amen. They found no more of her. All they found was her skull, her hands, her feet. He said, why did God do that? That seems so, so terrible. I'll tell you why. Because God knew that if they buried her body there, there was a sepulcher there, somebody would erect a monument and start worshiping Jezebel. He said, let it be known, there's no more of her. That's the way it ought to be. If you don't deal with sin, eventually it's going to rise itself back up and be an idol in your life again. If you don't deal with sin as God wants you, it's going to raise its head back up. You know what we need to do is do like this old man, Yehu. We've got to deal with our sins until there's no more of that conviction and no more of that, of that, 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 that compulsion to go there and no more of these desires. Listen, every man that's got a problem with lust and every woman's got a problem with lust and every person's got a problem with lying, I tell you why it persists that way and you've got a problem with your thoughts being all screwed up and messed around. I tell you why it's that way. Because you have not dealt with it to the place where there's no more of it. So tonight, are you living in victory or are you living in defeat? But sinful habits need to be broken. 
Guys, you're not going to you're not going to get over, over your internet problems until there's no more of it. You ought to value your virtue and your holiness and your mind more than you value that two thousand dollar computer because it was two thousand dollars when you bought it when you took it home. Asked Dave Tran when you took it home it was only worth a hundred dollars. Amen. What is your name? What is your necessity? Real quickly tonight. What is in your nature? Yehu means Jehovah is He. One verse defines Yehu's nature and we're done tonight. Verse 20. The driving is like the driving of Yehu, the son of Nimshi. For he driveth furiously. Don't go near him. He's a crazy driver. You ever say that? It's 11th grade. 11th grade, at least during my time, which is back in the time of Moses, amen? Your big thing you look forward to is getting your driver's license, amen? Driver's ed, driver's training. And you know how it is. You're a little bit envious when some of your friends get to drive the car to school. Now, I... You know, when you become a parent, you, you try to get that out of your kid, amen, you know? I had a friend, I won't say his last name, his name was Brian. Brian got a fiery blue V8, Brother AJ, 350 horsepower charger. The Dukes of Hazard type of char- a charger, amen? How many remember that, Amen. Had no mufflers on it. Room, room, right? And every teenage guy says, man, I want a car like that, you know. And I was waiting for the number 15 bus. That many books at my side. We didn't have backpacks that day. That's how far back we go, amen. <laughs> now you guys don't even have backpacks. It's on your computer, amen. <laughs> Holding my books there. Trying to look smart, but at the same time, just wanting to be real worldly, amen. And Brian pulls up around that, that curve there at the high school. He said, Fong! Well, I was the only Fong sitting there, amen. He said, Fong! I said, yeah. What are you doing there? I said, waiting for the bus. Hop in, man. Hop in. Come on, man, hop in my car. I'll get you home. I know where you live. Oh, that's pretty cool, Brian. Sure, yeah, no problem, man. Get in the car. He wrapped that thing up. He took a right turn in the parking lot. All I remember is this. On Skyline Boulevard, everything was a blur for the next 10 minutes. <laughs> there were no seatbelts in the back seat. It's the honest truth of the matter. There were no seatbelts. I flew as he hit those. If you've ever driven Skyline, it, those curves as you go down. I, 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 start, I was on the right side, the passenger side. I flew to the driver's side. I flew, flew back to the passenger. I'm telling you, man, I look like a ghost. I said, Brian, slow down. He said, come on, Fong, you know it's good. Come on, man, it's really, you know you like it, you like it. And he just popped him. I think he was doing 100 going down those curves. I was saved then. But I sure didn't want to go to heaven at that moment, amen? (laughs) Notice verse 20. He driveth furiously. The driving of Jehu. The driving is like the driving of Jehu. He says only one guy drives a chariot like this. In verse 20, I need to move quickly. This man is describing his character, his temperament, his leadership skills, his leadership style, I should say, his people skills, his spirituality, and the results he derived. Did you catch that? In one verse... This man's character, his temperament, his leadership style, his people skills, his spirituality, and the results he derived are described in this one verse. He driveth furiously. Now, as we close tonight, can I ask the question, are you a Yehu Christian? Are you a Yehu Christian? Do any of these questions describe you as a Yehu Christian? Do you drive what you want furiously? Do you drive people away Do you drive people to their limits? 
Do you drive your personal agenda? Do you drive your spouse and children away? Do you drive people who serve with you away? Do you drive with no intent of stopping? Is your leadership style filled with rage? You cry like a baby if you don't get your way. You sit there and muse at night what's wrong with the situation. I got a report the other day about people that are criticizing me and criticizing our church that are Christians. And I thought, you know what, that's so sad. Here we've got AB 2943 up there in the Senate that needs to get destroyed so we can go on and serve God. And I've got people that should be on the same side of me criticizing me of things that are not true, criticizing our church of things that are not true. We're fighting one another. What is going on here? We need to say our, our state is going to hell in a handbasket and we're fighting and criticizing over preferences? Do you lead others by motivation or by intimidation? Is your leadership style my way or the highway? What does a promotion or success do to you? And by the way, a lot of you, I've seen what promotion success does to you. Does a promotion give you a cause to drive over other people to get your results? Do you drive over people? Do you lead people in the dust? Are you a Yehu father? Are you a Yehu husband? By the way, I don't think so. Why don't you ask your spouse and ask your children? Do you have a Yehu personality? Are you a Yehu decision maker? Listen, consider the traits of a Yehu Christian. Yehu Christians are success driven at other people's expenses. Yehu Christians intimidate and manipulate for followers. You say, how do you know that? Look at chapter 9, verses 18 and 19. So there went one on horseback to meet him, and thus saith the king is at peace. And Yehu said, now remember, he's the one that drives furiously. Yehu said, what is thou to do with peace? Turn thee behind me. And the man did him ask a question. The watchman said, this messenger came to him, but he cometh not again. He was intimidating. He was manipulating. Read that in chapter 10, verses 1 to 15, 1 to 5. Yea, who Christians are moved by their flesh and strong personality. Yea, who Christians are marked by little or no prayer. Isn't it interesting, chapter 9 and 10, he's anointed by the commandment of God through Elisha's servant, but he doesn't go to Elisha one time in chapters 9 and 10? I'm going to catch up with you. Yea, you Christians do not have a walk with God in His Word. So how do you know that? I thought you saw these good things about it. Look at chapter 10, verse 31. Yea, who took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart, for he departed not from the sins of Jeremiah, which made Israel to sin. God gave him a chance, but he said, I'm not going to follow you, God. That's the problem. Baptists take the Bible and make it what they want it to be. You can't take the Bible and make it what you want it to be. The Bible makes you what God wants you to be. <clears throat> Yea, you Christians are cutthroat. Yehu Christians like to get in people's faces. Yehu Christians are moved with a vendetta. Yehu Christians have little to no mercy. They use deceitfulness to accomplish their goals. Yehu Christians have few friends, and the ones that they do, they manipulate those few they have so they can get what they want. Yehu Christians have a tendency to be cold-blooded. Yehu Christians listen to the preaching of the Scriptures. They refer to verses and quote, quote the verses to back up their duties. They do all these things to give idea that they're spiritual and have an authority for what they do. And by the way, you say, how do you know that? Well, Jehu cited messages that were preached by Elijah the prophet in 2 in Kings 9, verse 36, and chapter 10, verse 10. But he didn't believe any of that. He used the Bible to back up what he, what he wanted to do, what, what he was doing there. <clears throat> Yehu Christians use their position to threaten and intimidate. Yehu Christians can fool other Christians. Look at chapter 10, verses 15 and 16. He fooled, he fooled Re- uh, Jehonadab, the recap, the Rechabite. Yehu Christians are self-righteous. They do not let anyone correct them, including spiritual authority over them. Did you notice he's not in submission to Elisha one time? Yehu Christians are building their own kingdom. That's exactly what he's doing. He eradicated the others out, but now he's building his own kingdom. Yehu Christians despise competition. He took out two kings, 70 sons of Ahab and all the prophets of Baal. Yehu Christians have their own idols that they cannot give up. By the way, he resorted back to golden calf worship. By the way, Yehu Christians have their own sacred cows. Chapter 10, verse 29. We're told Yehu driveth furiously. That's why Elisha told his servant in those early verses, after you anoint him, open the door flee, and tarry not. Dangerous business. What's in your nature? What is it you're driving? What are you putting at risk by driving furiously? Tuesday afternoon, October 17, 2017. Westminster, Maryland. What I'm going to describe to you, I've been on that road. I drove that road when I preached for Norris Belcher. 
Four people were killed in a head-on collision after deputies saw a vehicle going about 100 miles per hour in Carroll County. Corporal John Light of the Sheriff's Office told local media outlets that the deputies saw the speeding Infinity Tuesday afternoon passing other vehicles in Maryland State 31 and heading towards Westminster. I know exactly where that was going. The deputy turned his patrol car around to try to stop the Infinity, but by the time the cruiser changed direction, the Infinity was out of sight. The deputy then came upon the crash scene. Listen to this and I'm done. A preliminary investigation showed the Infinity had passed another vehicle, clipped a second one, then lost control and struck a Mercury Cougar head-on. The Infinity's driver and the three occupants in the Mercury Cougar all died. The driving is like that of Yehu, for he driveth furiously. Are you a Yehu Christian? What's in your name? What's in your necessity? What's in your nature? Father, tonight, help us to evaluate our hearts this evening that we're not guilty of Yehu Christianity. There's too much of a propensity of a Yoram, a Ahab, a Isaiah, a Jezebel, or anything like that inside of us. What a convicting thought in Romans 6. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness. And Father, tonight I just ask that you have this invitation time. The justice he had to deal with Jezebel. And the Bible says there is no more of her. There's some sins that need to be dealt with that there's no more of it. Lord, we humble ourselves before you tonight. Thank you for good people here tonight. I pray this evening we desire to be godly people, set apart for the glory of God, not be wavering as a Christian, not wavering as a Baptist believer, realizing that, Lord, we have a special anointing from God, that we're growing in grace and doing the work of grace in our lives. Fathers, we take this invitation time Just like Yehu had to do, he had to exercise conviction, he had to exercise courage, and he had to be a conqueror. I pray you give courage tonight, conviction, and deal with whatever the Holy Spirit's brought to our mind, because he's our teacher. We have an unction from the Holy One. The Bible says that anointing that you received him abideth in you, so that you need not that any man teach you. But the same anointing teaches you all things, and is truth and is no lie. Even as it has taught you, you shall abide in him. Paul, John said, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence, not be ashamed before him at his coming. Dear Lord, we humble ourselves to you tonight. Have your way. Revive our hearts, we pray, this invitation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Even before the pianist plays, would you make your way to the altar tonight? Let's stand and make our way this evening. We don't even need to hear it. We just need to make our way and find our way with God. Let's come find our place tonight. serious thing it's a bad personality trait the driving is like that of Yehu for he driveth furiously a spirit of humility a servant's heart teachability be guided by grace time. Take your time. Don't don't rush. You take your time. Dear Lord, tonight 
Thank you for 2 Kings 9 and 10. Encourage our hearts. We pray for the word of Christ to dwell in us richly. Teaching and singing with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing, make our melody in our hearts, Lord. Lord, so convicting tonight when the Bible says they were called Christians. Disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. What a testimonial, what a tribute to people who are living for God, separated from the world. Having such a dynamic testimony, even more than Jerusalem, even more so than Lord in Samaria, the believers in Antioch gave testimony, a sacrificing, submission, crucified to the flesh, living for Christ. Father, tonight, we can't do it of ourselves. <clears throat> we need help from you. We need power from above. We need enablement. Please help our believers tonight, our, our, our church, to have a discerning mind, to know truth from error. And be careful, those we've been sharing with our discipleship classes, who rise up among, men to rise up among yourselves, speaking perverse things, trying to draw disciples unto themselves. We realize tonight that, Lord, the only agenda we should be driving is to promote the Lord Jesus Christ and lift Him up on high. We pray for Christ to be lifted up, be glorified and magnified. The Bible says, He that hath an ear, let him hear. Lord, help us to be good stewards of what we hear. Because the Bible says we ought to give the earnest heed to the things we've heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. And deliver us, Lord, tonight from developing an evil heart of unbelief. Lord, tonight we thank you for victory that perhaps some have gotten tonight. That you be glorified through this passage and what we've heard. Now, Lord, get us home safely for those meetings still going on tonight. Superintendent, guard those meetings for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, a couple of things tonight. Um, we have the ladies' meeting this Saturday, and we need all the men to help us just take everything down. We need to stack the side sections, and uh, we need to move away the orchestra platform stuff here and then remove the platform furniture. So can I get all the men to help us? Unless you have an injury of some kind, but if I can get all the men to help us, that will help us get it done really quickly. We need to move the chairs aside, remove the platform furniture. Please be careful with the furniture. Don't break anything, if you would. And uh, we need to put, put all the orchestra stuff away. Please leave the instruments alone. Let the people who own the instruments move it. Or let an or- orchestra member move the instruments so they don't get broken. But let's move that away and that will be a help. Pray for the ladies. We're praying for a good turnout. We always have ladies do, that do not know the Lord or new visitors come. Let's pray there will be a blessing to them. And they'll want the Lord just to just work in their hearts. Pray for Mrs. Kelly Rasmussen who will be, who'll be uh, bringing the word to the ladies on Saturday that God will use her. And then um, be in prayer for our Mother's Day service. It comes up on Sunday the 13th. That will be a blessing. So winning still this Saturday, men. So I encourage you men to be here for Saturday. We're going to be right in the main auditorium. And it might be a skeleton crew. It might be a large crew. Whatever it is, we're going to go out and win some souls. Amen? And you help us with that. Pray for Sunday morning. We're going to continue the series on yours forever. I got a message entitled, The Miracle Marriage. And it's, it's just, a, just the Lord to that passage of Scripture just worked on my heart this morning on it. And we're praying that God will use it to help many, many families. So you try to get folks to come for that. And uh, bring them in. We're reaching families. We, we already had several families. God just helped their lives get turned around. So pray for this series that God will use that. And we'll probably slowly over time get into some parenting issues, beginning with teenagers, things like that, that we need to just kind of work on there. So you pray, pray that the Lord will do that. Well, you're dismissed. Now let's tear down the chairs, put things away. God bless you for being here tonight. Deacons, we'll meet in about 10 minutes.